Your very next role, Mr. Kaplan, and you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. Hello, and welcome to episode, I didn't check before we started, 107. Oh, close. 107 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we discuss films previously described by other um, uh, wrong men as masterpieces. I am Nick. I am the uh, man mistaken for an actual podcaster of this podcast. And I am joined, as ever, by Roger. Who may actually know what's going on, but certainly ain't going to tell you. <laughs> um, we are um, furthering our Hitchcock um, education. And today we are discussing um, the uh, mysteriously lamed, named North by Northwest from... 1959 is this one? Yeah. And I've got to say, in my head, this is black and white. I, I, I hadn't <laughs> seen it before this, but I, I had seen that scene. And if you've seen the film, you know exactly, exactly which that scene is. And that was definitely black and white in my head. So, oh, really? Try. I assume you're talking about the crop duster scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, I suppose most of Hitchcock's in my eye, in my mental eye, are, are these kind of relatively early colour films that are just not quite accurate. So they always look slightly... <laughs> um, they're not quite as off as... Um, so I, I don't know, the one I always think of, the epitome ones, are like Danny Kaye films for some reason. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I mean, something like uh, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. Yes, yeah. Where it, it's just... it looks like... Yeah, to get that effect now, you have to hand-paint each frame. <laughs> Whereas here they are... They're just not quite true. They're like brighter than real life. Everything's more colourful. Um, I believe that was actually part of the point. You know, they they couldn't get it completely faithful, and so making it bright and gaudy was kind of a goal. Um, certainly, much more so than in um, Vertigo, mm. which we discussed um, uh, in our last episode. Um, North by Northwest has. Um, Cary Grant, it's our, it's certainly our first appearance by Cary Grant in mm-hmm. um, Ribbon of Memes, um, as the uh, suave Roger, I mean, he couldn't be anything but suave because it's Cary Grant. Um, uh, and also, obviously, because he's called Roger. Uh, well, <laughs> and we have what is probably becoming familiar to you now, Roger, the Hitchcock Blonde. Um, mm mm-hmm. In, in this case, Eva Marie Saint, who was, did actually have something of a career before this casting. Um, mostly known from In the Waterfront. Oh yes. She is, of course, in On the Waterfront. I could have been somebody. Um, and that's a good film. The thing that really surprised me, uh, James Mason as the big villain. Um, it's funny, I forget James Mason actually sort of exists contemporaneously in the... Yeah, but I mean, he was a guy who could who could carry a leading role on his own. And yes. to, to use him as the villain, obviously uh, continuing the great Hollywood tradition of casting an English actor for the villain because they need to be able to act better. Well, well I mean, well, at least we have the uh, uh, the English actor as the um, as the main character as well. And um, Leo G. Carroll, I think, was English as well, who crops up as the the professor. Yes, he was English. Um, we'll, we'll come back to him, yeah. So this is, I mean, this ticks a lot of Hitchcock boxes, which again may become familiar to you. To you the um, uh, the wrong man um, is a is a common feature of um, Hitchcock films, as are big monuments. We had um, 
Well, we had the San Francisco, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge and um, San Francisco Bay uh, in mm-hmm. the last episode. Here we have a, a plethora of, of monuments. Well, we have the United Nations Building. We have um, uh, the uh, Mount Rushmore. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, a thriller with um, a MacGuffin. For sure, the MacGuffin here is is really a true MacGuffin in the sense that it makes zero difference <laughs> to the plot. Mm. It's it's a doll with a microfilm in. We never find out. We barely even know the MacGuffin exists, um, but it does drive the plot. We never Ev- know. Everybody wants it. That's, everybody that's wants really it, matters. and it matters not whether it's nuclear secrets or um, uh, chemical formula or anything. You never find that out. You never really know what the villains are doing. <laughs> um, but but or, it is it is right and proper that the Americans have it, and and not that anybody else should have it. Oh, absolutely yes. Well, this is 1959. Um, yeah, and and Kerry uh, Grant here is an ad man, and I will admit I groaned a little bit. It it doesn't become all that important in in the story, but our introduction to him is definitely yeah. Okay, he, this is a guy who just lies to everybody all the time. <laughs> Mate, yeah, I wonder if in '59 that was thought of as a respectable profession. Um, it seems to be. He's quite happy. He doesn't look ashamed when he admits his profession. Uh, to me, it's a bit like. Um, the uh oh what's it called the martin scorsese uh the wolf of wall street which is like the story mm. of a the hero is a stockbroker and that makes it very hard for me to <laughs> care about the rest <laughs> of the film at that point um anyway he's not doesn't do much adding because he is mistaken for george kaplan um uh due to a, a sort of an inappropriate or just complete happenstance mix up that assassins assume he's George Kaplan, he's far too handsome and suave to be anything else other than a secret agent, super spy. Um and then hijinks ensue mm. without a lot of sense or <laughs> I mean the, the the trying to follow the plot. I mean the individual scenes are full of sort of humour and tension and um, all resolve themselves neatly. But then the next scene makes very little sense. It's <laughs> very the, little... Um... There, there was... I, OK, let, let's just put up our usual warning of great big spoilers for the entire mm. film. If you want to see it without knowing what's going to happen, go away yes, and see it watch now. watch it now and then um, come back. But, so the, the first thing that happens, he, he is uh, kidnapped from downtown mm-hmm. and... Taken to a house where it, it is clear that we, yeah, we, we, we know perfectly well you're the spy. You're doing a great job of pretending you're not and, and pretending to be ignorant. It's getting a bit boring, but you know, uh, and eventually he's taken away from there. Um, do, dosed up on strong spirits, put behind the wheel of his car and set up to drive off the edge of the cliff. Oh, we haven't mentioned that as well as the suave, um, Fantastic villain of James Mason. We have Martin Landau appearing. In yeah. The, the um, well, right, I, I was going to talk about him later, but yes, this, this is an early film role for him. It's about the third or fourth time, uh, he was, he was on film. To me, I, I, I first saw him in Space 1999, which should obviously be made a lot later than this. <laughs> yes. And then in uh, Mission Impossible, you know, back where the BBC would rerun things a lot, particularly American series that are relatively cheap. I, I always kind of liked him in, in that, but. Yes. More recently, I've started to see him in um, smaller TV parts and stuff like this. It, it, it's not a huge part, though. He's around quite a bit. And he just has that splendid, I, I am completely evil and probably enjoying it face. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, yes, co- I'm very, competent, very but I, do, I, I don't do this for the money. I do it because it's fun. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I did wonder if there's a bit of um, uh, because this is another Hitchcock trope of a, a sort of um gay coding, um, in that he is he's kind of vaguely suggested to be gay, but well, unfortunately true, also for Hitchcock, um. He's also a villain, which is also quite classic for Hitchcock. But there's a well, we we are things. we are still in the code era here, so you couldn't say it explicitly, even if it were planned. And there, <laughs> there is certainly, I mean, one one of the problems you have to accept if you start reading classic pulp is, yeah, if, some, if, if somebody is gay, it is because they are a villain, or vice versa. Uh, right. So. Yes. Yeah. Um, but at one moment, he says, "Call it my woman's intuition." And he certainly seems quite jealous of uh, the relationship between James Mason and um, Eve Marie Saint. Mm. Maybe I'm overreading there, but knowing it's it, it could be there, at least, not. yeah. But it's not. It's not heavily laid on anyway. Uh, so yes, um, poor old Roger Thornhill is laden with um, liquor and and sent off in a in a car with the genius plan of the villains that if he's drunk and driving, he's clearly going to crash and kill himself. Well, I, I think, you know, they, they do a reasonable job. They, they put him at the, at a point where. He's yeah, definitely going to drink. No, nobody would be able to regain consciousness and take control in time to get away around that bend. Unfortunately, he does. Yes. Harry, obviously, obviously he's, he's used to being pretty liquored up. Uh. <laughs> well, he's an ad man. This is where his background <laughs> of being an ad man helps, that he does a pretty game job of drunk driving. There's some very, um, Dubious drunk acting by Gary. <laughs> well, he he does get to the key point of getting police attention, and the villains are not prepared to murder a whole bunch of policemen, uh, not having seen Fargo. <laughs> and and, and so they end up having film. to let him go. Now, the the so yeah, he he's booked for drunken driving. He tells this story; nobody believes it, and he goes back to the house the next day with with you know police and his mother in attendance. Uh, interestingly, the, the actress who played his mother was younger than Cary Grant. Um, mm. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I, he does look good, um, Cary. I mean, he's, he, he was close to retirement. I think that's like, just when I'm out, they draw me back in kind of, yeah. kind of role. Uh, and the house isn't like that anymore. The, yeah, the, the, the secret, secret cupboard where the liquor was is now just a shelf of books. Uh, there is somebody there who is the same woman he saw last night, but says, oh yes, yes, he was here at a party we were throwing. Uh, you didn't drink that much. Um, did you get home all right? Um, mm-hmm. And all that kind of thing. Now that that's for the disorientation. That's absolutely great. You know, he yes. he's, he's obviously starting to doubt it a bit himself because everything yes. just fits together. However, <laughs> what what we're expected to believe is that what the villains think is that this guy really is George Kaplan, and he got away. Yes. If that is what they think, then they should be expecting him either not to come back at all, yes. or to come back with lots of official government forces who will believe him because he is George Kaplan the spy, and arrest not everybody. Not coming back, continuing to spout this, what they believe to be a nonsense cover story. So they have no outfit. reason to set up the house to look plausible like that. Well, I think in a nutshell, that's the problem with trying to follow the plot of North by Northwest, in that it's full of these individual scenes, which you understand why they're there, and they make sense on their own. But in the context of the plot, it it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And we'll come on to a few others like that. But yeah, that's the most egregious in a way. Um, but it is... Uh, that that uh, was all that leapt out of me at the time. I mean, other, other stuff... 
it, it what's the term fridge logic you know if the film yes. can carry you along with it with its own pace and you think later well hang on a minute that makes no sense that that is at least a, a partial success enough. Yes, um, I suppose I'm thinking particularly, as we'll come on to later, the, the iconic scene, which uh, doesn't make a lot of sense in itself either, to be honest. Um, but we'll come on to that. But the, he is at this point, um, utterly confused. He goes to the UN to find the man whose house it is, mm-hmm. because we want the UN. He finds the man who was then murdered. Oh, who, who is not the guy he met presenting himself as that man last night. It's not James Mason. It's a random... Prefer- um, and then, of course, he's uh, a knife thrown in his back. Cary Grant... Um, sorry, Roger Thornhill. Uh, there's not much <laughs> difference between the two, to be fair. Um, grabs the knife, of course, well, and wields I, it. I think, to be slightly serious... Um, part of the part of his job is to, is to be the audience identification figure he's the normal guy oh yeah wh- whom all these strange things are happening to so well much yeah. like um you know he's he's a sort of a classic hitchcock protagonist of an everyman which is why james stewart was a, a long a long standing con, con, uh, con, collaborator is that the right word um uh, anyway, a long-standing <laughs> contributor to Hitchcock's films because James Stewart is one of the classic everyman. Um, now, yes, but know. but Scott, I, I don't think Scotty. I mean, yes, it, we're we're following his viewpoint. But I don't think he's an audience identification figure in quite the same way. Well, I think Talk, in talking here about Vertigo, Vertigo, just in case you haven't listened to the previous episode, which of course oh, yeah, you listen, should <laughs> listen to. That, but in that one, uh, I think he, James Stewart's there to subvert it, really, because mm. you sort of think he's going to be your viewpoint character, and then you gradually realise, hang on, there's something seriously wrong with yeah, this man. Yeah, but, but certainly but I, I agree, that. that's what's going on here. Yes, um, except most men don't look like Cary Grant, to be fair. Um, but then it, it escalates from there. Now he's wanted for murder, he's on the front of all the newspapers, um, and he's... Yeah, I mean, to... if you've listened to any of Roger's murder corners, don't pick up the weapon. <laughs> and certainly don't stand over the corpse looking shocked with blood on your hands I don't know how realistic that is that people would assume you would get picked up and taken for questioning though I guess yeah, it which does, would have been it, the best that would have been a shorter film if that's how it it does rather rely on the quality of the local police at that point which well, we'll, which we'll you would hope they'd, be, you'd hope they'd be reasonably good I suppose it's still NYPD they don't have their own police force anyway he then gets on a train and then things get very um, James Bond, which we're probably going to talk about later as well. Mm. But he meets a, unusually for Hitchcock, he meets a very prim and proper, fashionable, buttoned-up blonde woman who is um, seething with sex appeal underneath it. Um, it's very unusual for a Hitchcock film, I know. But um, how, how did he come up with these ideas? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, the, he certainly had a type, let's put it that way. And and here the type is uh, Eva Marie Saint, who um, takes quite a liking to Mr. Thornhill. Um, there is a, a sizzling scene in, in a diner, um, which is basically them pretty much just talking about having sex with each other um, <laughs> with some thinly veiled dialogue laid on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so so the the line "I never make love on an empty stomach" was changed to, 
Um, what was it? I never talk about love on an empty stomach. Yeah. Um, but, but it was changed quite obviously with um, additional dialogue recording later on, because mm-hmm. he still seems to be saying that. This is where the similarities with Bond really started to hit me, because this is particularly like Roger Moore era Bond, actually. But um, actually, the whole thing feels like a Sean Connery. Era yeah, well, there are several specific scenes um, that, that struck me as, yeah, this is, this is where that particular Bond film got it from. Um, there's a bit in Moonraker where Bond has broken into a uh, bio-warfare lab and things have gone horribly wrong and he comes back the next day and it's it's a mansion. Yeah. All the evidence yeah. is gone. Um, we'll talk about the crop duster. There's, there's the helicopter fighting from Russia with love. Well, um, from Russia with love has a whole scene on the Orient Express. Yeah. Which is uh, auction room shenanigans as seen in Octopussy and so on. Um but also the whole sort of character. Yeah, so I, I, not... be, beyond the individual scenes, that this whole yeah, he, the 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 smooth talking guy, um, the... irresistible to women, mm-hmm. um, quips and uh, 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 always thinks on his feet and out of a situation, and is never kind of truly phased, even when the villain is about to kill him. I mean, it's it's he he is kind of James Bond in these films. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, dehydrated Bond just adds snobbery, which you have in Fleming <laughs> and Spades. Yeah, now it's probably fair to say neither you or I are a huge fan of James Bond as a character, um, particularly not if you've read the novels, where he's actually, uh, most of the veneer's peeled off and he's just revealed to be the uh, uh, misogynist psychopath that he is. Um but he, uh, uh, he is more likable, you're right, because he's, he's a little more confused. You identify him with him, with him more because he's just trying to clear his name. Hmm. He's not James Bond. <laughs> he, not he, he may not guy. know what's going on, but he knows what to do when he's sitting at a table with a gorgeous woman. Yes, exactly, yes. He doesn't waste much time uh, um, before long um, uh, with further snappy dialogue. Like, aren't you afraid I'm going to murder you? Um, uh, um, do it now and that sort of thing. Anyway, it... it he um then the plot thickens because she sends him out to um uh, to a, a a very open area and this is i think this is hitchcock kind of trying to do the very opposite of a film noir hmm. like this is just completely flat it, it's a bright sunny day there space. there is no building no cover yeah one Nothing. signboard yeah but he is in just as much danger as anyone in these uh, dark alleys do- uh, with rain-swept uh, streets and villains hiding around a corner. Well, just harking back to um, the the van life thing we were talking about a, a little while back, uh, the wide open spaces in American film are usually code for freedom. Yes, exactly, but here it's code and, for... And here, similarly, it's, it's no being cover. subverted. There is nobody here to help you. There is nowhere to hide. Also, it's str- this scene is uh, one of the... Uh, relatively few in this film without any soundtrack mm. um, it's just uh, danger and it, it is I think this scene is I can see why this one is a classic it's kind of viscerally done and when Cary Grant is like running towards the camera uh, unlike a lot of the film actually he looks pretty scared and, mm. and actually genuinely ruffled and nervous but, and his suit goes through a lot um, I heard <laughs> Somewhere, I think I saw a review somewhere. It was like um, North by Northwest is not a film about what happens to Cary Grant. It's about what happens to his suit, um, and it does, <laughs> it does take a bit of a battering here, um, and gets covered in um, 
whatever crop dusting chemical is is squirting out of it. Well, yeah, and th- this is also disorientation because he he's expecting to meet someone here. That's mm. what he's been told is going to happen, and there's nobody there, and somebody goes past, and there's still nobody there, and and then he's just attacked by this plane that's been sitting in the background. Well, he has this nice encounter with this slightly suspicious-looking man who turns out he's just waiting for a bus. Um, and then he builds up the... It's funny, he's crop dust in there when there's no crops. Oh, I don't know why he was from Somerset, but, you know, it takes all <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, and it sets up this... Um, uh, pure kind of cinema attack, which is pretty much... This is another one of the, to me that's nonsense. Who's flying the plane? We're never shown anyone else. Where did hmm. they get a plane from? What, it, it, trying to delve into it, it, it doesn't... It's to miss the point in a way that Hitchcock doesn't care about those details. What he cares about is you being excited at this moment and thrilled that he's going to get through to the next nonsensical scene. Yeah, uh, the, the thing that was whipping me back and forth was, on the one hand... It is exactly a, a plausible model of aeroplane to be a crop duster at that time and place. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a um, primary trainer built basically from the, from the mid-30s up to about mid-war. And as with so many of these things, they were sold off in huge numbers afterwards. So, yeah, it's exactly plausible for a, for a 50s crop duster. On the other hand, they, they've gone to a lot of trouble to show you the bullets striking the ground from where the plane's strafing him. And they do it after the plane's gone past. I yeah well the, the whole machine gun almost felt a bit like an afterthought because the plane seems more interested in just kind of buzzing him and mm. uh, just shoots him a bit when it clearly could have killed him before uh that was that one didn't quite pass my fridge logic as you say that the the bullets are hitting the corner around him once the plane has gone past and it only uses the machine gun sort of on the second or third pass uh when it clearly could have just finished him off with the first one um, but it, it's a it, shame in a way he didn't have helicopters because a helicopter hovers low over somebody. It kicks up all sorts of uh, crap and dust and so on. And, you know. Yeah, that would have been. We, we have the sort of he gets crop dusted. Um, and then the plane kind of gets dusted, luckily, um, because <laughs> there was no other way he could have got out of that situation. But mm. the, the pilot was looking out the wrong side or checking his phone or something and flew right into him. But the purpose of that, of course, is to create a huge explosion um, and to make Cary Grant look very good jumping away from an explosion in an immaculate suit. I mean, his suit gets such a battering, they have to clean his suit to make sure he can continue to wear the suit for the rest of the film. <laughs> it is a very nice suit, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. And Cary Grant looks very good in it. Um, and then we have, uh, one of my favourite scenes is the auction scene, where we have like a confrontation and the, the dancing and the interplay, because um, he's discovered now that he's been betrayed by um, Eve. Eve, um, and so he thinks he's realised that she's a wrong un. Um but uh, pretty soon, because he manipulates himself into getting arrested, and I very much like the auction scene where he's just mm. basically making a complete arse of himself. Yeah, well, the, yeah, that that last part I think works quite well. The the, the earlier part where where they're having the uh, menace off. Mm. I like the menace. I don't like the way it is basically dick waving of "I had your woman." In as, in, in yeah, as much as the code allows you to say that, but that is clearly what they're saying. Yes, yeah, it's it's she is a, an object and she's a trophy. Um, and uh, there's a lot of yes, uh, and that was kind of the attitude at the time. It's interesting. Um, 
you know, we haven't talked much about Eve, Eva Marie Saint's acting, particularly. I mean, she's not... Uh, we talked about in Vertigo with Kim Novak. We were quite very impressed with her acting. I'm sort of less impressed with Eva Marie Saint here because she's, she's given a sort of less interesting role. Um, well, in Kim theory, Novak. she has a triple role to play. In theory, but... The, the, Be- because, on... I mean, we have established this at this point, but we have a cutaway about a third of the way through the film with the explanation of what's really going on. Yes. Um, so, Kaplan is a, a notional agent who is, who is there basically to draw out the enemy and get them chasing him rather than the actual agent. Yes, but he never existed. Yeah. Until um, uh, Roger Thornhill was misidentified as him. Yeah, and so... Also, um, Eve is working for the good guys as a double agent inside um, what is it, Van Damme's organisation. Uh, yes, Van Damme, is that right? Yeah. I never noticed that before. Um, uh, that's puts, uh, thinking of uh, John Claude in a um, <laughs> in a predator. So, yeah. You know, on the one hand, um, she she is uh, working working for a friendly agency. On on the second hand, she's she is evil, working for enemy. enemy organization third hand there is the actual genuine eve falling in love with roger thornhill yes yeah it, it could be done as a triple role and, and you you can tell which one she is in at any given moment but yes i, I can't help feeling it could have been done better um i mean hitchcock's is uh, he's, he's sometimes described as sexist sometimes described as a um a feminist director in the sense that he gave his uh, women kind of fairly strong roles, um, and I think the truth is probably both of those things. Really, he had some strange and very specific ideas about what women should be, and one of those things was to be strong characters, really stronger than the men. Mm. Um, uh, and so I think he gave them roles like that. Um, now here, because Cary Grant really is the action hero, the the the, the Hitchcock blonde, even Marie Saint, gets less of a kind of a strong role. That Kim Novak, unlike the one that Kim Novak had mm. last time, um, but it's uh, yeah, she's uh, she gets less interesting things to do. She does, of course, look stunning because Hitchcock spent a lot of time making all his actors look stunning. I, d- I, d- I think he was probably thought of. I might be wrong about this, but one of those directors that thinks actors are a bit like props, and he's not interested in them bringing a lot to the performance so much as. Mm. them doing what he tells them. Certainly Kim Novak said things along that, those lines. You know, she right. read the script, she had some ideas about how to play uh, Madeleine, but she was just told, no, this is what you're doing. Right. <laughs> yes, Hitchcock was already kind of a star director uh, well before this. So mo- moving on from there, well, um, Thornhill gets arrested. Um, he's basically try- trying to get it stick with the police rather than you know, be out on his own again. By Van Damme, yes. And uh, there's, there's a certain amount of business, but basically he, he ends up meeting the professor, the, the, the head of friendly agency, never named explicitly. Leo G. Carroll. Um, yeah. Um, who, this is the, the kind of the third act of the film now, if we're talking about it. Yeah, we, we've seen him once or twice um, earlier. But yeah, and oh, obviously to to somebody like me who's seen The Man from Uncle... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where, where he's also the boss there. Um, yeah, I, I suspect that at least part of that casting was probably because of his role here. So, I suspect so. I mean, he, he's a very good kind of British um, uh, fatherly style um, boss. 
Um, I, I've seen him in a few. Usually, as scientist roles in atomic horror films, um, like <laughs> Tarantula. Um, but yeah, and, and then Cary Grant gets. His, and, but, um, but he's also doing a great job of manipulating Thornhill. Uh, you know, oh yes, yes, of course, absolutely, of course, you can get out of it, and we'll, we'll just we'll just leave Eve to uh, go off and get killed. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. Yes. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I couldn't possibly ask you to help. Uh, and then we have the the the, the final. Uh, well, we have the, a confrontation, which turns out to be pre-planned, but a confrontation between another kind of menace off, but this time Roger Thornhill's got a much better idea of what's going on, in the cafe um, at the base of... Um, uh, uh, Matt Rushmore. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, this, this is actually the the only part of the whole Mount Rushmore National Monument where they would allow Hitchcock to film at all. Okay. Right. Everything else is constructed. Yeah, that well, that fits. I think they're allowed to go around there and take some photos, but otherwise... Um, uh, weren't yeah, allowed to um, do much more. The actual building was quite new, they only put it up in 57. And so the, the confrontation, um, uh, Roger Thornhill has apparently killed, um, no one seems surprised that there's no blood or anything, he just keels over and that's it. Um, but again, it's another one of those scenes that has to work to move the plot on. Um, and it, it, it worked and for that, me. There is a certain amount of hustle because it, it's it's Eve who's shot him, and she runs away, and and the the, the rest of the bad guys don't want to be hanging around at the scene of a they murder. Don't want to, yeah, so everyone else crowds around um, poor old Roger Roger Thornhill's body, um, and then he's he's driven off. Um, uh, says goodbye to Eve for one last time, because at this point it's clear that uh, uh, James Mason, sorry Van Dam, I can't say that. We're thinking about John Claude Van Dam, but um, is is. <laughs> Clearly about to escape to another country, probably Russia, because at least the Cold War has been vaguely mentioned. The thought. Um, with some secrets that he's not supposed to have. Um, and again, we're given this sense of urgency and plot without really it actually mattering what's actually happening. We, it's a very manipulative film, I, I feel like. You're, you're mm. just told, right, in this scene, you have to care about this. Um, and you have to do that. Oh, and you have to feel this emotion now in this scene. Um, there's not much deep thought going on, but it is um, it's masterly done the way it does drag you from scene to scene. And almost, maybe it's just because we've watched a lot of films or maybe just we're a more uh, educated audience in film, but it, 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 some of the cracks show a little bit in uh, the transition. Mostly it works, scenes. yeah. I, I, th- I do think, I th- it's, it's, and I, I don't think, Hitchcock was unaware of that. I think his his whole aim was just to uh, drag the audience from one scene to another and and kind of tell them, don't worry too much about what's actually happening. Just enjoy this particular thing that I'm showing you now. Um, and that's I think that was. I mean, there's a moment when like uh, it almost feels like Hitchcock's talking to the audience when they like uh, Roger Rowe Thornhill. What does the O stand for? Oh, nothing. It's basically saying, don't worry about anything under the surface. Nothing else, nothing matters particularly further than this. It's just uh, an action film. But I was, so then we have the climax. Well, there's, on- there's a similar thing with, with the title. Um, well, there are different stories on that. And Hitch, Hitchcock claimed that it was an in, uh, a, a compass direction that doesn't exist because the whole thing is to, to make you... That, you know, it, it, it is all flat. It is all surface flash. There is no, there is no reality here. Uh, yes. Everybody who wasn't Hitchcock said, "Yeah, the studio put the name on it." 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he had to have a legend. That he does fly by Northwest um, Airlines. It, does, it seems like a bit of a tenuous thing, but it's a good enough name anyway. It sticks in sticks in your mind. Anyway, we have a, a final um, uh, meeting where we oh, realise. All right. A, a new corner, Rogers Architecture Corner, because this is a glorious Frank Lloyd Wright house, which does <laughs> not in fact exist. It is a lovely house. It does not exist. That is a shame. Uh, it, it was basically put together by the production designer. Uh, so it's, oh. it's map paintings and some great internal set design. It is an absolutely beautiful log cabin style with, oh, yeah. Cantilevers and everything. It's beautiful. Um, Picture but window looking out over the valley. It mainly exists so Roger Thornhill can be in the right place to observe proceedings and drop uh, matchbooks with hidden messages inside. And there's nice little tension when um, Martin Lando's character picks up the... I, I'm forgetting most of the character names, actually, because uh, <laughs> I just... That's it, that, there's, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, they're, they're, they're just sort of gloss over you, really, the, the, the names. And it's just each... It's like moment to moment is the important thing. Um, and he, uh, you know, there's a moment when he picks up the matchbook and then he's written there um, that he's going to be in her room and then she nips up to get her earrings. And then I remember it was getting very much towards the end of the film, like there were two or three minutes to go and they were still fighting on um, Mount Rushmore. It's wrapped up that quickly, really. We have mm. um, apparently he was going to slide down Lincoln's nose and hide in Lincoln's nose. That, that was one of the original ideas before there was even yeah. a script, yeah. But he was not allowed. The Mount Rushmore guys were like, um, uh, the Mount Rushmore authorities, whoever they are, I don't know if that's the American version of the National Trust or whatever. Uh, National Park Service. Oh yeah, okay. Well, they were not going to have anyone slide down the president's faces and disrespect them in such a way. (laughs) They had to clamp around the outside of the president. Um, But it is a suitably exciting location to have both villains fall to their deaths. By both, I mean James Mason uh, and Martin Landau who gets mm. shot to death by the arriving cavalry just as he's about to stomp on um, Cary Grant's fingers um, for a final time. Uh, and then we have... <laughs> this, this is where Bond pinched so much of this from. The moment when he's in the train and he's about to... Um, uh, <laughs> about to enjoy the fruits of his victory with um, with Eve Marie. Pointing out they uh, are now married. That feels like a very <laughs> yes, but <laughs> okay. So yes, right well, after clearly, he... some somebody you've known for less than a week is, is a person you you can marry with absolute you know respect for the institution and all the rest of it. Followed but, immediately no. by a shot of a train entering a town. The, the least subtle <laughs> use of that motif I've ever seen. Yeah. So it's interesting I, I... to note, incidentally, that uh, Eve spontaneously slips. Just, just like uh, Madeleine in Vertigo, you, you just can't trust women to climb things. <laughs> well, I wonder if that'll become a Hitchcock feature. Um, but it's—I uh, mean, as a summary, I agree with you. I mean, it's nonsensical, but uh, you know, Hitchcock knew what he was doing. I mean, the scenes work on their own. These are actors all at the top of their kind of... Cary Grant came from, like, screwball comedy, and he's half screwball comedy, half action hero, mm. which is a very good Bond-style character, and certainly I, I feel he does it... Uh, I feel he does it better than Sean Connery does, but my favourite Bond, such that it is, would be Roger Moore, which is perhaps why I, I responded well to Cary Grant as an action hero. Mm. Um, I, you know, it's got James Mason in, so I'm not going to complain about that. Martin Lando's great. Eve Marie Saint, um, uh, is 
she doesn't have a lot to do, but she, she looks as well. pretty as she's supposed to, and she's very, she is a strong um, and sympathetic character, and you do care about her. Uh, yeah. the, the impression I get, you know, never having been on a film set, uh, is that when she gets the chance to act, she she's good at it, but she isn't wasn't given the chance to. That may just be because of what I know about Hitchcock's directing style, but. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. We started with Vertigo, which is a, a kind of a a weird exploration of the director's obsessions um and now we're sort of seeing what his obsessions are here is where he's he's not trying to bear his soul or anything quite the opposite really he's just trying to entertain the audience mm. and he's very good at it i mean, I mean using his usual template for this is a gorgeous woman but yes yes that's a this distracting when you're aware of it but also i was surprised we've touched on it already but how much the bond films lifted absolutely particularly from this this one film i mean hitchcock never made another kind of action hero roger thornhill film like this but it, i've i've seen it described as the first bond movie and i would totally understand why so C- certainly the bond films took a lot from these yeah i mean obviously they built up their own visual style and, and conventions as well but yes there certainly seems to be uh, if, if in doubt yeah let, let, let's just sort of reach for a uh, a, bit, a bit we haven't used yet from north by northwest <laughs> yes um and a lot of the Bond films to me felt like that. Bond kind of stumbling his way through clues that half make sense and half don't, but really get him from one set piece to another. You must um, go to next location. Yes, exactly. Um, and I can absolutely understand why that, you know, the crop duster scene is, is described as an absolute, uh, classic of cinema. It feels like pure cinema in that it just wouldn't really work in another medium. You know, reading that would be less, uh, immediately visceral I, you know a gifted writer could you, you could make an exciting novel of it or actually probably i think you get so slightly visual do it as a graphic novel or other yes uh you know static visual form but, well yeah. the problem with a novel form of this sort of thing would be you know fridge logic is a bit harder to, mm. <laughs> to bypass when you're reading the book at your own pace um but it's uh, you know we have great villains i genuinely you know cary grant was a true star i think and he knew exactly what he was doing here even though to be honest i don't think he quite understood what was happening in the film from (laughs) scene to scene um well it's interesting there there have been quite a few uh films we've talked about where you know somebody somebody on the set has said oh yeah okay but hang on yeah as in with uh the big sleep who who actually did kill the chauffeur and, and, and uh, the author says, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, and the, the interesting thing for me is there isn't a big denouement scene in, in a way that you know, m- most films would try and, and very often the actors complain about all the stuff they had to try to remember and explain. But that just isn't here. Uh, no. the, the most we get is, is Carol uh, in, in the forest saying, yeah, the, this, this is why we got Eve to do this, even though she actually is not a professional agent either. She just happened to be in the right place, and and we we were able to say, right, you 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 know, you're already in with him. Yes, we never. You're right. We never have the kind of the stakes explained to us. We're never told this is the president's um, medical health insurance details. They cannot be fall into the hands of the Soviets. It's never. It's just assumed because the language of the film is used so well that you're just assumed to know this is important. You've got to care about this. Let's not worry too much about the details. Just go bang. Uh, and I, think... and I don't think there's ever any any real doubt uh, about which side Eve is on, 
maybe a little bit, but really not very much. Even during the auction scene where, you know, uh, Thornhill's saying, yeah, yeah, I slept with her, and, and uh, <laughs> Van Damme's saying, yes, but she's mine anyway. Yes, it, it's pretty clearly. clear from her expression which side she is on at this point. Yes, uh, she's never unsympathetic. You never truly believe. And it's a relief to you when you realise, oh, no, she's she's the, the double agent that was talked about all along. It's it's um, it's like a pure injection of cinema, this film. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, my hesitation here is I suppose it's a pure injection of not my favourite style of cinema. You know, it engendered... In, it invented a lot of things, and it's very well done. But I, I do, maybe I, I do like to understand what's happening in the plot, and I do like to have the characters a little deeper. Um, and I find it harder to just disengage my brain and enjoy a film in that way. Now, there's a way this film I feel is absolutely masterful at it. It doesn't go over the top. It's not, you know, a lot hmm. of modern films nowadays are just. Boom! Explosions too much. It, um, it does keep things moving. So, you know, if 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 you can be swept up in it, yes, then that's yeah, yeah, and it, it frequently did. My my own it's probably personal taste is that I just um, I don't really like Bond films that much, and <laughs> I I I, I, I didn't um, win. Me. I don't. I've never been a huge fan of like spy fi, and this feels like one of the early spy fi, and by which I mean, you know, modern day, but with not fantastical elements, but slightly ridiculous elements that just. Yeah, the, um, I think we've mentioned before, uh, John Rogers on, on Leverage talks about it as crime world. You know, it, it it's yes. right there alongside the real world, but it's, it's all more glamorous and so on. Yes, and I, you know, I'm quite happy if that's like vampires or, or something <laughs> like Um, I'm, I'm less enthused when it turns out to be a microfilm and it's just, um, but I, I suppose that's why I, I'm trying to well, think of, you know. Okay, so it's another thing I'm, I'm pretty sure I've said before, but I've, I've enjoyed action films a great deal. Uh, yes. Some of them we've talked about, but, but I like to, I like to have the characters established so that I know why this matters to them beyond, holy, holy crap, I'm going to die. Yes. You, you know, what, what am I actually trying to do here? Why do I specifically, what are my personal stakes in this beyond survival? And even, you know, films where, you know, Predator, for instance. Um, it, what's really going uh, on? But but on, on one side, we know what's going on. Here, here is a bunch of Rufty Tufty Special Forces types. We understand this. Yes. Uh, I just say, uh, yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to say is it doesn't need a deep, <laughs> deep, uh, multifaceted character. But I have to, I have to be invested in it. And I was here. I mean, the wrong man is always a good way of doing it. It's a good shortcut. Mm. To, that and, and, and it is a good excuse for why we don't get the info dump of what's going on for the most part. Yes. Because he doesn't either. And which is, and I think this is one of the things that James Bond finds very difficult and to, to get right. Because, yes. you know, obviously Bond knows all this tradecraft stuff. The, yes. the typical member of the audience doesn't, and yet they have to be able to work out what he's doing when he does a thing. Which is why he doesn't behave like any actual spy whatsoever. Well, ever. also Fleming's belief on what actual spies were like. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah. Um, well, yeah, he seemed to have a, despite working for an intelligence service, he seemed to have a funny, uh, funny idea of what spy. Anyway, that, that is by the way of me saying that this film, North by Northwest, doesn't quite resonate with me it's not one of my favorite ever films but i can i can see the craft in it i can see how well it's done 
Uh, I like all the acts and I like the performance and it still manages to sweep me up. So I suppose for me personally, it's not a perfect, wonderful film. And I, so I went into this you know, sort of convincing you to watch some Hitchcock because I really did feel Hitchcock was one of my favourite directors. But as it second... certainly has been, has been a lacuna in my film watching experience. Yeah. But this is, I guess, the second film in a row where I felt, yeah, I can see it's, it's a great craft. It's very well done. It just doesn't quite work for me. It works better than Vertigo, I think, because Vertigo is a deeply weird and disturbing film. We, we, we won't talk about Vertigo again particularly, but here I think it's the North by Northwest sets out exactly what it wants to do. It gets it all right. Um, it doesn't care about the details because it's got kind of rightly kind of points out it doesn't really matter don't get carried away with it um but it it works on a as you say a moment to moment level yes um i i mean obviously if i if i were a professional film critic i I guess i am because we have we have received occasional donations for this well there you Uh, go if we've been paid for it i mean i i I could in theory um build lots of what what does this particular this third shadow on the left actually signify mm. and so on. But while I think to some extent in Vertigo that could be justified, you know, is the, is this a hint of that? I don't think this film is hinting at things. I think it's just no, sticking them up I on agree. the screen. It's just pure cinema. So it, um, it's fun, but I don't think it's deep. Yes. And I, it wasn't meant to be. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, it's, he's just very good at doing it. Um, I just, uh, I suppose we like, Das Boots, which, you know, thrilled, to me, I find more thrilling and fascinating because it's, because it's real. Uh, it's not just a creature of cinema. Um, mm. I mean, it's not any more real, is it? But it, it just, it feels more like people have been in this situation. No one's ever been in the situation that Roger Thornhill's been in, or if they have, they died in the first scene. Um, so <laughs> I, I, but all that aside, all that aside, for me, is it a masterpiece? I, I, I almost grudgingly, well, not grudgingly, I didn't it, grudge it, it. It's right on the line. Uh, and I'm not sure which side it is. I, I well, think also, um, looking at it now. Yes. Uh, it captures, it, it meshes well with my idea of the late fifties in, in, yes. you know, white America. White America, if you have a decent amount of money. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the the white America that got put on the screen. It it it's it it is a good match for that, perhaps to some extent, because lots of things copied it. But it but it does have that feel of yes, there is this shady paranoia, and you don't really know who who's a secret agent for the other side. Yes, and it play it doesn't make that a dark thing. It it takes it makes it a virtue. Um, hmm. I think for me it is a masterpiece, and I, I, part of our. Um, Part of our uh, qualification is was it was it influential? Well, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, it influenced the whole genre. There had been action films before this, but this really sort of feels like one of the first modern action films in a way. Well, uh, also, I, I think more imitated than um, Vertigo was. Oh yeah, yeah. But Vertigo was there. And there, there have been other, other suspense films, but. And I think that's what pushes it over for me. I do like it. I wouldn't be horrified to watch it again. I, I enjoy it. I mean, everything about it is very watchable. It just feels a bit... St- starting with, you know, a, a, a minor thing, but a, but a good one. That that title sequence, you know, we, we go from the MGM line into crosshatched diagonal lines. Oh, yeah, that's... And, the, and then fade up from that onto the frontage of a glass building. 
Now, apparently that was going to be Cary Grant doing Adman things to establish that he was an Adman. This is much better, um, partially because they were having to pay Cary Grant five grand for every <laughs> every day they went over by that <laughs> point. Um, but I think he offered to do it for free. Anyway, I I I th- I it succeeds in everything it has to do. It's not trying to be anything clever. It's just Hitchcock saying, "Yeah, I can do this." Here we go. I and, and I think the craftsmanship as far as pure cinema goes, is just, you can see mm. why he was thought of as an incredible director. Uh, so I think it is a masterpiece. It's just not, I suppose, a personal favourite. That would be my opinion. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. Also, a really obvious director cameo, if if you have the slightest idea what Chichcock looks like. <laughs> yes, he's... Um... As, as the guy who fails to get on the bus. Always uh, fun. We have another. I don't remember it in Vertigo. Did he do a cameo? But still, well, he probably doesn't need to because um, James Stewart is Hitchcock for the whole of Vertigo. <laughs> um, there will be uh, a cameo in in the next Hitchcock film we discuss. Um, but I think that about wraps it up for North by Northwest. Hmm. Do we have more to say about it? I think that's about it for me. I mean, a, a, a small side note: I, I do I do love the aesthetic of those great big old land barge finmobiles. Oh yeah. E- yeah. Even if they do get, you know, four miles to the oil field, that they look gorgeous. <laughs> yes, not the most economic. It doesn't matter when gas is as cheap as it is in America, I guess. Um, but there we are. Well, well done, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you, less you really need our dark. approval, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Keep it up. Um, okay. Well, we will return possibly with a third in our Hitchcock trilogy. Oh, Fairly will we? Oh, the master of suspense strikes again. 